Uh, pray with me, and then I'm going to invite my friend Kirsten up to the stage. Father, um, we thank you for, gosh, um, thank you for Paul. Thank you for the words that we get to study this week. Thank you that I have felt overwhelmed with the message that you love us. You love us, Lord. I pray that every woman in this room walks out today understanding that she is loved. She is loved infinitely by a God who doesn't have conditions. And so um, thank you that you leave us this word to remind us of that. And God, um, we ask you to be in this room to just come and just calm our hearts and give us this 45 minutes or whatever of just peace to be here, to leave the world outside. Father, thank you for um, what you are about to do. And we, we, um, we ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. My friend Kirsten Green is joining us today, and we're going to do um, a day of, of soap, a soap day from your homework from this week. And so um, Kirsten is going to share with us something that, that God showed her this week. So with that, which day did you do and what was the scripture for that day? Tell me that. Mm-hmm. I chose day two, and I chose three six. Three six. Awesome. Okay, wait. I, I mess up. I do this all the time. What was your title? I get in trouble in our small group leader meeting because they're all like, the title's like the most fun part. It's so artistic. You can like express yourself, whatever. Okay, what was your title? Thanks for the mysteries. Oh, that's pretty good. See, I do miss that a lot. Okay, I'm sorry. Moving on. So the first question for our soap would be what scripture stood out to you passages or phrases or I chose three six the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel awesome I love that that uh that we see that word mystery over and over which I probably jumped ahead that's probably one of her observations forget that part okay what were your observations Kirsten I chose some words and some little word phrases that I liked, and I uh, said the words were, mystery, uh, mystery is made known, insight into mystery, revealed, and partakers. And then I have bullet points on this one. Um, the mystery is Gentiles are fellow heirs. I just thank Paul that he just told me what the mystery was. I appreciate that. God is so full of mystery, but so much mystery has been unlocked and opened to me by reading scripture. In the Old Testament, the Jews and Gentiles were separated until God's perfect timing, until he sent Jesus to tear down the dividing wall. Uh, We all share in God's blessings, even me. And when I first became a believer, I thought I really had to be in Abraham's bloodline. But I know that, but it's, it's not that way. I'm accepted. Um, and then God reveals what we need to know when we need to know it. Awesome. I love that when I'm looking at her page. I know some of you guys like when I typed out the questions, but the blank page is just so cool because it allows all the space, you know. So like those days that you have like tons of observations like Kirsten did, she's got this big giant space for it. So Um, I love that. So moving on. So application, what are you going to take from whatever God showed you? And then how are you going to attempt to live that out? I need to wait for his timing and to be more patient. Uh, Stop rushing ahead of him. And my biggest one is remember to pray first, not do the thing and then pray. Uh, Go to him with everything. Understand that I am an heir. And the, uh, I'm an heir to the promises of God, the creator of this universe, and an heir to his amazing kingdom. And I would like to also share the gospel more. That's awesome. What about your prayer? Lord, keep me. Oh, sorry. Lord, help me remember who runs things. It's not me. Thank you for keeping some mysteries from me. I am not created to know it all. Thank you for being a simple God and that all you ask for is for me to love you. And also for being the most complex and mysterious God who protects me and keeps me safe. Awesome. Thank you, Kirsten. She awesome. I love getting to hear what, um, what God is showing other people. It's so it's fun for me because I don't have a group. Like I told you, I'm an orphan. You talk about this whole part about adoption. It's important to me. Um, I don't have a group. Hey, uh, Get your Bibles, open them up to Ephesians 2. We're going to finish out Ephesians 2. We're going to go right into Ephesians 3. 
where Paul took us this week. So last week, if you remember, I had put a slide up with a real gnarly scar, right? I put a slide up to show you this gross scar that can be seen in a lot of different ways, but instead of seeing it as um, painful and grimacing every time you see it, we instead see that it's a wound that's been healed, right? It's a place that God has stepped in, and for whatever reason that we've been reminded, left with a reminder, but healed. Um, We talked about how Paul was essentially kind of giving us that same kind of perspective. He kept telling us over and over, our wordy Paul, our bold wordy Paul, this is who you were, this is whose you are. And to the Gentiles, this is where you were. You were on the outside of this promise, but good news, now you are grafted in. We are unified as one. It was good news, wasn't it? Well, this week, we're going to finish up Ephesians 2, um, verses 17 through 22. And we're going to talk about the three um, word pictures that Paul gives us to try to remind us and try to explain that grafting in, that unity. Okay, So we're going to talk about the house that God built. Secondly, we're going to look at chapter 3, and we're going to look at Paul and how he defines himself. He's a prisoner with a purpose. He's a prisoner with a purpose. And then lastly, we're going to look at this beautiful prayer that Paul prayed over these believers in Ephesus. And we're going to talk about how that prayer was laced with humility, and he asked for power and love. So, like I said, if you have your Bibles, open them up. Um, We're going to take a look first at chapter 2. Starting in verse 17. Listen, um, this was kind of cool. In our small group leader meeting, we take turns leading it. And so this week, our sweet Kay led it. And you know what she did that I thought was really cool? I hope you guys will do this too. Because if you're like me and you sleep, you forget stuff. Like in some of us that are older, we forget lots of stuff. During When we take a look at these chapters, the way I had to break them out, sometimes it's like, okay, he starts in verse 17 with the word and. It's really good to go back and remind yourself of what you saw right before it. So right before it, in chapters 15 and 16, Paul's reminding us of who Jesus is and what he did. And so now we step into Paul giving us this illustration of then what that means. Okay, So follow along with me. Verse 17, Paul starts this way. He says, and he came and preached peace. Jesus, okay, that's who he is. He came and preached peace to you who were far off. Who was far off? Gentiles, right? Us. And peace to those who were near. Who were the ones that were near? The Jews, right. So two separate people. He's still addressing the two separate people here. Verse 18. For through him, we both have access to one spirit to the Father. In one spirit to the Father. So then, which I love that. He's like, okay, this is all the things I've been saying. And then he says the so then. So that means because of all these things, because of what Jesus did, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Verse 22, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place. For God by the Spirit. Here's the thing. I love um, that, that we're seeing Paul go, okay, guys, I've explained this a bunch of times. This is truth. You know this truth. We've preached it. We've taught it. This church believes it. But for some reason, some of us need to be reminded. It's as though we don't live as though we believe what we say we believe. Does anybody? Don't raise your hands. That would get awkward. I, I do that too, right? I say I believe all of this, and a lot of times I don't live like I believe it. And so Paul is going to say, okay, let me, let me say it this way. Let me lay out some pictures for you. And so the first thing he does, he lays out these three metaphors. The first is that he says, you are grafted into this new kingdom, right? He says that there's a new citizenship, that you're no longer strangers, you're no longer wandering around, and you're no longer rootless. I love that idea. You're no longer rootless. Now you have roots that go deep and hold you tight, and you are part of something. The second word picture he gives us is he he brings light to the idea that we are now family. We're united as a family. Remember in um, chapter 1, verse 5, we see that, that God, through Jesus Christ, has grafted us all in through adoption, right? That we're all part of the same family. We're all one through adoption. Family mattered back then. Family matters now. But back then, family was everything. That was your status. That was your security. That was your future. It was your, it was your worth, 
And so for him to be able to say to these Gentiles who are sitting here, and I'm not going to lie, there was probably still a little bit of division because it's been thousands of years that the Gentiles and the Jews were two peoples. And now he's saying we're all one and we're supposed to sit together in the, in the middle of the church and kumbaya. I mean, that's probably a big, big thing. But now we're family. It's intimate. And then the third picture he gives us, which is where we're going to spend most of our time, is he talks about how we're now God's holy temple. And, and the reason I used that phrase, the house that God built, I loved how the message put it. I don't know if you looked it up. The message says, verse 19, like this, that God is building a home. And he's using us all, irrespective of how we got here in what he's building. It's a home that God is building. He gives us three ways that God is building this new holy temple, okay? Now, I want to pause for just a quick second and make you um, aware of a couple of things that were interesting to me. You know, I, I'm not real, like, smart about a lot of history and stuff, but I do know this, that every time I see the word temple, you know, I'm like, oh, that's, that's, like, that's like a big church, you know? Like, it's, okay, that mattered. Here's what you want to understand about the word temple. When he says we're building a new holy temple... Understand this, at the time that Paul is writing, the temple that Herod built, I'll back up in just a minute, that the Jewish people flocked to, that they felt like that's where God was dwelling, was still standing, okay? So there's this big temple that's been built, rebuilt, actually, because does anybody remember, anybody that did Ecclesiastes, I know some of you look weary, so I know you did Ecclesiastes with us, Um, remember our author, what was his name? Oh, come on, Solomon. Yeah, you're all like, oh, we forgot all that. Um, no, King Solomon was the one who wrote Ecclesiastes, but he's also the dude that built the temple, the Jewish temple. Remember, David had the plans, but God said, no, you don't get to see it through. Solomon's going to build it. That temple got destroyed. It sort of got rebuilt by the, by the Israelites later in the Old Testament. But then in the New Testament, it got rebuilt by this King Herod who wanted to buy the Jews' appreciation. He wanted them They were under Roman rule, and he wanted to impress them, and he wanted them to like him, so he built this temple. Okay. I say that because all of this matters. Because when you talk about the Jewish temple, it's like the focal point of Israel's identity for thousands of years. Thousands of years, guys. We, we can't even understand that or comprehend it. That word was powerful to the Jewish people. And so at the time, there was still the, the temple was still standing. Now, Jesus prophesies in Matthew that it's going to be burned down. And so soon it will be burned down to the ground and no longer stand. Now, when it comes to the Gentiles, what does that word temple mean to them? It matters to them, too. Remember how we talked about how um, Ephesus, the town where this church is that he's writing to, remember how we talked about it was, like a, it was like a headquarters for pagan worship, okay? So they had this big, giant temple, and it was called, um, it was called the, the Temple of Artemis or Diana. That's a goddess. And here's the interesting thing about that. There's parts of that that are still standing. And it's considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and it was the first marble temple ever built. So it was this massive structure that had such significance in the life of these Gentiles. So when he says temple, don't skip over that word. He's saying these two temples at the time Paul's writing are still standing. And so he's saying that God is building a new holy temple. Now think about what they must have thought when they heard that. Unreal. What is he talking about? And so I love that then he gives us the different parts of the temple, doesn't he? He talks about how with this new holy temple, there will be a foundation. There will be a foundation. And when he says that the foundation comes through the apostles and the prophets, this is something we can know. When that term apostles and prophets is used in that order, that refers to the New Testament apostles. Okay, that's the New Testament. What they're sharing is this new truth after Jesus has come. Does that make sense? He's saying to them, in essence, this. God's word, who Jesus is, the eyewitness accounts from the apostles that saw this happen and saw him come back to life is what we build everything from. Everything. There's no question. Our foundation is a lens. It's a lens of truth that we see everything now. It's like now our eyes have been opened because we have Jesus and he's the foundation of everything. It's not that we live life and we see the word of God or the truth of who Jesus is through our circumstances and through the world. It's the other way around. Foundation, when you build something, has to be strong and reliable and unchanging and unmoving. And that's what he's saying. This is the foundation that we build 
this new holy temple. Well, then he goes into the whole cornerstone thing, right? And I love that. And, and I don't know if you're familiar with that term um, when it comes to the Bible or even just when it comes to just regular life. But I found it fascinating. I don't know if you looked it up in your homework. But the more I looked into it, I was like, wow, this is really cool. There's a lot of talk about, about Jesus being the cornerstone to our faith. And that, that was another one of those terms that kind of just went over my head. I'm not a con- into construction. I don't really understand what a cornerstone is. Well, I did a little research, and I found this, that a cornerstone, um, now it can be more symbolic because of the way technology works. I mean, a lot of buildings, especially city buildings or state buildings or government buildings, have a cornerstone, and they dedicate it, and it's this big thing, right? But this is what is interesting. You know, a cornerstone historically was the first mason stone set. It was the very first stone set when a building was being made. And, and it had purpose that went way beyond just symbolic purpose. It had purpose because this cornerstone had to keep things together and keep things perfectly aligned. It had to make sure that everything was stable and that sides were joined. And, and I love, um, I looked it up and I found this, this kind of interesting story. Does anybody know the story about the cornerstone from the Washington Monument? It's pretty interesting. It, okay, so in 2015, they were doing some digging and, and some renovating around the Washington Monument, and they were trying to repair a septic tank, which is where all the godly things happen, septic tank repair. But they were digging, and they came to this, 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 this um, stone, this big rock thing, and they stopped, and they went down, and they dug down, and they looked, and it was the original cornerstone for the Washington Monument. And it was, that cornerstone was laid in 1848. What a discovery. It was the foundation, it was the cornerstone that held the foundation steady that built up this amazing monument that is such a symbol in our country. And what was interesting about that is when they opened the top of it, they found historical items stored inside of it. And if you've done, if you're more historically smart, you probably know more about this than me. But I found it so fascinating. They had like jars in there and newspaper and they put money in there and they were trying to say this is what was happening at the time that we built this and we laid this cornerstone. Cornerstone matters. You know, Jesus is referred to and prophesied about as a cornerstone. In, in Psalm 118, we see um, that, that, that the psalmist says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's quoted again in Matthew. It's requoted again in 1 Peter. The stone that the builders rejected. Jesus is the cornerstone to this new temple that's being built. That was radical. That was radical. That was life-changing. you got these guys that have always looked at these big, giant buildings, and they're like, this is where God dwells, and this is where our gods dwell. And it's, it's crazy because it's like, oh, no, wait, guys. We don't need a building. God doesn't need to dwell in a building. Amen? Jesus is the cornerstone. Well, the third part of the temple that Paul lays out to us when he's defining this new home, this new temple, is he talks about us. There we go. Remember we talked earlier, the book is about, well, sometimes it's about us. So we get a little spot here. It's about us. He says um, in verse 22, he says, in him you are also being built together into a dwelling place. That means we are the stones. We are the walls connected through the cornerstone built on top of the foundation. Our foundation is unmoving. It's the truth of who Jesus Christ is and what he came to do for us. It's what these apostles are teaching. It's what Paul is risking his life to teach. And then the cornerstone is Jesus, holding all of it together, right? And then we are the stones. I I thought that was such an interesting picture that Paul lays out. You know, the message says it this way, that now he is using you, fitting you in brick by brick, stone by stone. It's a cool picture, isn't it? I love um, Paul's buddy, uh, Peter. He was one of the apostles who was there with Jesus. Remember, if you did John, Peter was, you know, the crazy one chopping ears off and, you know, roosters crowing and all that. That's Peter. He's just, he's very excited. Um, But one of the things he did in his letters is he talked about us being living stones. And in 1 Peter 2, verse 5, I'm going to read it to you, but jot it down. You're going to want to go read about that because it talks all about the same thing. The same idea that we are stones and that Jesus is the cornerstone. He says this, verse 5. You yourself, you yourselves are like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You yourselves, Flower Mound, Texas, 
Rock Point Church Women's Ministry, you yourselves are living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are part of this thing. That's, that's, that's unbelievable, isn't it? We are living stones. You know, Paul, I mean, excuse me, Peter goes on in his, in his um, second, I mean, first Peter chapter two, and he goes on and he kind of gives a job description of what a living stone is responsible for. A living, and that's you and me, so you want to jot this down because, you know, your job description is important. But this is what he tells us. As believers in Jesus Christ, if we are living stones and we're part of building up this new temple, this is our job. The message says it this way. It's, it's, we're to do his work. We're to do his work. We're to speak out for him. And we're to tell others about the night and day difference that he made in our lives. Do his work, speak out for him, and tell others about the difference he's made in my life. And then, and then Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, he goes on to add to this job description in 1 Corinthians 10.31, and he says this. He says, whatever you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So he reminds us that every bit of the things that we do, we're to do it for the glory of God, not the glory of Chris. Not the glory of, hey, everybody, check me. For the glory of God. I, I, that's, that, I, love, I loved all that. I love the visual of it and the beauty of the idea of the living stones. It's beautiful. And then I sit here and I go, okay, but what does that even mean? I don't even, what does that even mean in my life right now? I, I, you're going to laugh hard. Um, so I consulted the great theologian Google and asked, what are some, uh, I do that a lot. Uh, by the way, I'm just confessing that right now. Google and I are we're tight when it comes to prepping for Bible study. But one of the things I was like, okay, what are some good, God, I need good examples for how we're to be living stones. Like, I know what it says, and I know that we are, and I appreciate that, and you're, you're awesome, but I need some really dynamic thing. And then my phone beeped. And then my phone went off, and, um, and I got a text. And I wanted to tell you guys about this text. So as I'm sitting here thinking, uh, what does being a living stone look like? I get a text from my son's best friend who's away at college in Mississippi. He sends me a text. Like, guys, he's like a 19-year-old kid. So let's just talk about that for a minute. It's morning. First of all, that's a miracle, AM, getting a text from a teenager in college. But this is what his text says. He says, hey, Miss Chris. Well, I'm still Miss Chris. That's so cool. And then he identifies himself, which I thought was really funny. I'm, I'm like, I don't know how to tell who texted me. I don't know. Anyway, I know this is kind of random, but I just wanted to share something with you. I wanted to thank you and Mr. Brent um, for loving on me so well in, in uh, middle school and high school. I'm reminded right now as I sit here with my Bible that not only am I blessed to have people like y'all in my life, but I need to get outside of my comfort zone for Jesus. And I need to obey when I'm called, regardless of how daunting a task may seem. I just wanted to share this with you this morning. And then he follows it up with, LeBron James is the greatest. Okay, so <laughs> we, have this, we have this thing. I'm a Michael Jordan person. He's a LeBron person. We have, it's a thing we do. Um, I say that not to bring glory to Chris. I say that to bring glory to God. Here's why. My life with this kid, this big, tall kid, he's real tall, big kid, um, he was an answered prayer for my son in middle school. We didn't have, he didn't have a buddy, you know, a guy, you know, like his, his, his posse, he didn't have it. And we would pray that, God, please just bring somebody, just bring somebody, he needs somebody. And then this big old lump of a kid moves into our town, and um, they've been best friends ever since. Now, this is what's interesting when you think about being a living stone. You know what I did in the life of this, this kid that texted me? You know what I did? This is what Miss Chris did. Miss Chris did this. I made him breakfast, and I cooked him real bacon. There you go. No, I, I, it was so funny. The first couple times he would sleep over at our house, I was making breakfast, you know, for them, and and I made bacon, and he goes, oh, Miss Chris, I'm only allowed to eat turkey bacon. This is so good. <laughs> and so I'm like, turkey bacon ain't bacon. That is not bacon. It's turkey cut in strips. Anyway, it's a funny thing. And then he, and then he would come over, and, and so every time I'd be like, Dad, John, I got more bacon. I'm cooking bacon for you. And so it became kind of a thing. And this kid would come hang out with us, and he'd watch basketball with us, and we'd argue about LeBron James together. And, 
And we talk about Jesus sometimes, but you know what we did? We lived our lives, and we pointed to Jesus in the midst of it, and sometimes we got to make bacon. And God uses that in the lives of other people. And so I'm like, as I'm sitting here trying to come up with some brilliant thing on Google, I'm like, God's going, hey, here you go. We are living stones. People are watching how we live. They're listening to what we say. They're eating the bacon we cook. And they're feeling the love of Jesus in the midst of this awful world that wants to tell them that they're not loved, they're not worthy, they're no good. I, I was humbled by that. I thought, man, I, what a gift. I want to look around and see those other ways that God is using me to do his work, to speak out for him, to tell others about the difference he's made in my life, and to do it all for the glory of God. Ah. Whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do. Whether you eat, drink, or you have sleepovers with a bunch of middle school stinky boys. Whether you eat, drink, or you're dealing with a friend who's struggling in a really dark place that she's walking through. Whether you eat, drink, or you're just driving in the carpool line. Or you're sitting in the, in the, in the coffee room at work. Or whatever it is, do it all for the glory of God. That's the definition of being a living stone. We make it hard. It's not hard. It's very, very clear. Well, we're the living stones, and sometimes, sometimes, this is what's cool. When we try to glorify him in every single thing we do, you know what happens is sometimes he makes good of it, doesn't he? Sometimes you get a text from a kid that you love, and you realize, I did something good there. God's cool like that, man. We get to fit brick by brick, stone by stone, and be part of this new temple. It's a privilege. It's an honor. I can't believe he trusts us with it, right? Well, he gives us this picture of this new home that God's building, and we're part of it. And then he moves in chapter 3 to, um, I, I laugh, y'all are going to crack up. He, 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 he's going to talk about himself a little bit, and then he's going to pray for us, okay? So move to chapter 3 with me, if you would. Chapter 3, verse 1. I want to tell you something funny. When I was reading one of the commentaries about this particular passage, this is how this commentator said. He goes, this first sentence of chapter 3 is a holy rabbit trail. Anybody seen, did your smuggle leader have one of these? Anybody? <laughs> nice catch. That was sweet. Yeah, we gave our, <laughs> I, don't, who, I don't remember who it was. It was maybe Cindy or Amanda. Came, because we always talk about like when we're trying to, you know, facilitate you guys. Like, let's not let there be any rabbit trails. Meaning, let's not go down this road that we can't return. And so somebody brought these stuffed rabbits. And trust me, it is like fun to throw them. So anyway, I just thought I had to throw that right now. But Paul does it. He goes off on a rabbit trail right here. Here's, here's what's happening. is He's beginning chapter 3. He's about to pray. But then he interrupts himself, because he's Paul and has something else to say. And he goes down this rabbit trail. He, he interrupts himself, and he write this down. I thought this was such a cool way of putting it. He gives a self-description in order to emphasize the unique privileges that God has given him. He wants them to understand, okay, I'm about to pray for you, but hold up. Let me tell you a little bit about who I am and what my purpose is. Because I feel like you need to know that because this is a great privilege and honor that God has given me. And then he prays. So we push pause with our Paul. He starts to pray, then he interrupts himself with his holy rabbit trail, and it goes like this, verse 1, chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, now remember, for this reason, everything he just talked about, all that stuff about how um, Jesus came to abolish this law, Jesus came to satisfy everything that God ever needed to do to unite these people, Jesus came to make everything okay. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ, Jesus, on your behalf, assuming that you have heard the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. Right there, he refers back to what we, we think there may have been an earlier letter written to the Ephesians church, maybe a briefer letter that went Previously, we don't have record of that, but that's what he's referring to there. So he's written to them before. I'm guessing, like any good pastor, he continues to shepherd and encourage even when he's far away. Verse 4. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. See that same term again. New Testament. Holy apostles and prophets, that's what he's talking about here. 
This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Verse 7, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which is given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am very the very least of all the saints. Do you love Paul? Like that was my favorite part of the whole thing, that that's how ident- he identifies himself. This grace was given to, the, to preach the gospels, pr- preach to the Gentiles, excuse me, the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light to everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who creates all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I'm going to pause. The rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I know a couple people were asking, what, what does that even mean? We looked at a bunch of different translations, and, and, and what did that give us? I don't know what your other translations told you, but I want to tell you what, what um, it's widely believed that this little phrase here means. He's referring to angelic beings, or um, not, not humans, but angelic beings in the heavenly realm. Now, more specifically, the fallen ones. Anybody ever heard of any of those guys? He's basically saying here, what he's trying to say here, is that all the angels that are watching with great anticipation as Jesus comes to earth and makes everything right again, and all of the enemies who are fallen from what he was intending them to be, they're all watching in anticipation, and they will ultimately see what we know comes at the end of the book defeat okay so that's what he's trying to say is like everybody's watching guys it's not just us everybody's watching to see this thing unfold verse 11 this was according to eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. He says a lot. It's a mouthful. But I want to break it down a little bit and we can understand what he's trying to say in his little holy rabbit trail here. He's trying to tell them, this is who I am, guys. This is who I am. I am a prisoner of the king, verse 1. He is a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Did you notice at the time, you know this because you read the Acts um, part, he is a prisoner in Rome of Caesar. He's a prisoner of Nero. He is a prisoner of the Roman government, but yet he says, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Interesting. Well, humanly terms, I mean, of course, he's a prisoner of the Roman government, but here, Paul's not thinking that way. Paul's thinking this way. John Stott says it like this, Paul never did think or speak in purely human terms. He believed in the sovereignty of God over the affairs of men. Therefore, he called himself, literally, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. So convinced was he that the whole of his life, including his wearisome imprisonment that he was encountering right now, was under the lordship of Christ. Think about that for just a minute. He's saying every bit of my life is under the lordship of Jesus Christ. I am a prisoner to him in the very best way. You remember we looked at that giant laundry list of all the bad stuff that Paul endured. He endured bad stuff. And I've said it before, I'll say it again, I'll say it till my last breath. If anybody tells you that following Jesus Christ is going to make everything okay and you're going to have a lot of money in your mailbox and everything's going to be good, they're lying to you. Run from them. Because Paul is such a great testimony to that. Here's the difference. You know, the same kind of stuff may be happening to a guy who doesn't believe that Jesus is the one and only Son of God that happens to Paul. But the difference is in how Paul lives his life and how Paul walks his walk. Amen? How Paul is a living stone. How Paul is standing here saying, I can say all this stuff, guys, because I've lived it, endured it, and I've suffered with you. There's no greater testimony, is there? Those people that come alongside you when you're in your deepest, darkest place, I'm going to tell you, this is, okay, this is a PSA. I'm gonna, this is free. I'm going to give you this. Bless your heart. If It's nobody in here. But, you know, when, you, when your son, you know, has this big, massive spiral fracture and, and this life-threatening, you know, infection and all these things, and the sweet little precious friends that come up to you and say, oh, my gosh, I broke my collarbone once, too. I'll, I is hard. And, I, you know, you just want to go, really? We won't talk about collarbone. We can talk about that. You get that feeling sometimes, right? You're, you're like, I, I, don't, I don't even know how to respond to that. How dare we make comparisons? But ultimately, this is what Paul is saying. Like, this is this life I've lived, and it's been really hard. 
and I've got something to say about it. And don't you feel that way too? When you have people that you know have encountered these dark places and they are still standing with their head above water, somehow treading water, you want to listen to what they say, right? You don't want to listen to the guy that, that says, oh, I, you know, I haven't had anything, but, but I'll, I understand. Paul. That's who Paul is. He's a prisoner of the king. The second thing we learn about Paul, he says it twice in verse 2 and in verse 7, is he says this, God's grace that was given to me. Listen, he viewed the fact that God called him, the fact that, that God knocked him down off a horse on a dirty road and changed his life. He viewed it as a gift. And it was a gift to be shared. It was a gift that he couldn't hoard, that he had to suffer for sometimes. But his ultimate purpose was to give the gift away. Spurgeon says this, uh, this quote, Every Christian here, meaning if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have claimed him as your Savior, every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. A missionary or an imposter. You either try to spread the word abroad the kingdom of God, or else you don't love him at all. It cannot be that there is a high appreciation of Jesus and a total silent tongue about him. Ouch, right? Am I a missionary or am I an imposter? We know Paul was a missionary. He was a prisoner for Jesus. He was a missionary because God's grace was given to him. Thirdly, he also identifies himself as the least of all the saints. Of the least of all the saints. I love that. It's simple honesty. It's not false humility. And here's how we know. Because we know how Paul lived his life. You know, I can act real um, pious and humble and all the things. But if you know how I live my life, you can decide whether or not that was true. Can't you? You know. That's the thing about Paul. He can say, this is what I believe about who I am. I can't believe God chose me to do this. And the fourth thing he, he covers here when he's identifying who he is. He says... That he's the suffering servant in verse 13. You know, I love that he, he identifies not only his suffering, but the beauty of this little part of truth that I hope you didn't miss it. And if you did, I hope you get it now. Is he's not just saying he's suffering. He's saying that people who love me are suffering because I'm suffering. Amen. He's saying you love me so much. It's okay. Don't be concerned for me. My suffering is not to be a concern of yours. Don't let it get you off track. Even when we're thrown into the darkest pit, even then. Even when everyone we love is thrown into the darkest pit, even then. Even when there's death and there's diagnosis and there's divorce and there's um, unjust things and unfair things and pain and loss and all the things that hit us in this life, even then, Paul's reminding his followers, I ask you not to lose heart. I love that. He wants them to understand, I'm suffering. Don't lose heart over the fact that I'm suffering because sometimes suffering can give way to glory in those only God moments. Amen? Sometimes in the worst, worst spot, the only way out is God, and that's how God shows himself in the lives of the followers of Jesus Christ. Paul certainly exemplified that. This is who I am. He goes into why I'm here. This is my purpose in his little uh, pause here. He goes into um, why he's here, and I'm going to move quickly. He says in verse 1, I'm here on your behalf. I'm here on your behalf. Acts records that the reason he's actually in prison at this moment is because of what he was teaching. Because he's teaching the very thing that he's writing the letter. Do you, how funny is that, guys? He is in jail right now because of the things that he taught. And so what would you do while you're in jail? I'm going to do it more. That's what Paul's doing. He's writing letters saying the same thing. No fear. He's there because of them, because he's teaching about a new people in a new temple. In verse 8, verse 8b, at the end of verse 8, he reminds them also that they are, he, his job is to proclaim Jesus to the Gentiles. That's his job. That's what God has called him to do. This grace was given, and I am to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. In verse 9, he, he finishes up his purpose with this. He says, I'm to bring light. The plan of the mystery hidden for ages of God who created all things. Remember, this, this mystery, as, as Kirsten so eloquently put, is so cool because Paul, Paul goes, hey guys, this has been a mystery for ages and now God has made it known. He's made it known. It's the unity of, of, of all people under Jesus Christ as one. 
That's the mystery that he's talking about. And he says here, my job is to go tell everybody about it. My job is I've been given responsibility to clarify and explain the truth. I love that. In verse uh, 8 through 10, the message puts it this way. This is a little bit more on my, my, my level. He says this, Eugene Peterson, verse 8. And so here I am, preaching and writing about the things that are way over my head, the inexhaustible riches and generosity of Christ. My task is to bring out in the open and make it plain what God, who created all of this in the first place, has been doing in secret, behind the scenes, all along. Mystery made known. And that's Paul's job. Well, in verses 14 through 21, now we see he's like, oh yeah, I forgot. I was going to pray. He starts again. It's the same three words. He begins the second intercessor, intercessory prayer for the believers at the church at Ephesus. He starts in verse 14, same way. For this reason, it's kind of like, hey, Paul, you like already said that. Like, okay, but he starts again. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. I'm going to stop there. He's humble, isn't he? Humility we see from the beginning of his prayer. This is who Paul is. There's two ways to look at humility here. I love breaking it out like this because I've never thought of this before. Number one, there's humble gratitude. He says, for this reason. He's talking about the reconciling work of Jesus Christ. He's a missionary, not an imposter, guys. He's saying that because of what Jesus did, I am humble. Because of what Jesus did, I get to do this. And the second part of this first little section that makes him really, we understand his humility, is that he says, what's his posture does he take? I bow my knees. He says, I bow my knees. Uh, what's interesting about that is less about... Um, Reverence, more about desperation, is really what this, this is showing us. A humble desperation. When he says he bows his knees, it's important for us to know the context of what he's saying. Okay, remember Paul, where he came from, Jewish background, right? He's big-time Jewish background, okay? Humble desperation. This was unheard of in the Jewish faith. You pray and you stand. You take a posture of... of, of, of of honor and you look up and you stand and you stand proudly even today if you go to Israel or if you've seen pictures of the wailing wall you'll see the people that are that are still Jewish believers they stand they don't kneel that was not something that they do they don't kneel kneeling is not what we do now desperation in the Bible we see instances of this desperation you know who knelt Jesus at Gethsemane the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26, 39, when Jesus was talking to his father, it says he fell with his face on the ground. The God of the universe who was there at creation, who came to this earth to live the life that we live and die the death we should have died for us, fell on the ground with his face on the ground. That's humbling. He was desperate, wasn't he? And the other instance that we see that you, we read about this. Do you remember Stephen? Do you remember how Stephen died? Stephen was the first Christian martyr, and Paul was there holding the coats and handing the rocks, wasn't he, when it happened. And Stephen, in Acts seven sixty, it says that when Stephen was stoned, that he fell to his knees. And what did he do? He prayed for those who were killing him in desperation. And so when you see this little phrase, I bow my knees. Don't just think it's, it's Paul being super, super spiritual. It's Paul being grateful and being desperate for those that he loves. He's humble. Well, and he, in this prayer, the two words that come up over and over and over again are power and love. Power and love. You see him over and over. And if you read that section again, I think you'll start to see him come out. Verse 15 goes like this. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with what? Power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength, power, to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the, and the height and the depth 
and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him, this is, cha- this is verse 20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Power and love. Paul is begging God for power and love. What does that look like in our lives? What is power and love? What do we need that for? Well, number one, we need to be strengthened by his power. Amen? Anybody? We're all, we all do. We need to be strengthened by his, by his power. I, uh, I, I, I was reading about the, the idea of power, of God's power, and I, I, it was hard for me to understand. And w- what was interesting is when you look at the second part of that, of that um, part where he's talking about how we need to um, dwell, we need to have this spiritual renovation, we need to have this dwelling place for God now. Um, I read this cool thing in this, in this one commentary, and he said he likened it to a spiritual renovation. Okay, all of us can relate. Everybody in this room watches HGTV, whether you admit it or not. You all do. Okay. We've seen renovations, right? We've seen where, where there's a house, and it's terrible, and all of a sudden it becomes this beautiful, amazing thing with lots of shiplap. Amen? Right? <laughs> that word. Um, <laughs> well, okay, so he's saying this is what we need to understand. God is trying to build this holy temple, this permanent dwelling place, not a temporary place that he's just going to come in and hang out and then, okay, I'm out. No, it's permanent. From the minute that I know Jesus Christ and I ask him into my world, he's there. There's no getting rid of him. So he's trying to say, I need you to build this. I need you to uh, be renovated. We're going to settle down here. Well, as one commentator puts it like this when he's talking about this section, he says, when Christ by his spirit takes up residence within us, he finds a moral equivalent to trash and like purple, gold, and green wallpaper. Pause. That actually was in my first house. Purple, green, and gold wallpaper. If any of you have that in your house right now, I'm telling you now, go get that down. Okay, I'm sorry. Okay. It was bad. I lived with it for like seven years till I finally ripped it off the wall. Okay, anyway. Okay, it's, it's fine. Okay, so back to this. So he says, we need to find a moral equivalent to trash and black and silver wallpaper and a leaking roof. Okay, so a trashed place, right? What's the moral equivalent to correcting that? He sets about, I love this, turning this residence into a place appropriate for him, a home for which he is comfortable. When a person takes up a long-term residence somewhere, their presence eventually characterizes that dwelling, right? When Christ first moves into our lives, he finds us in bad repair. It takes a great deal of power to change us. And that is what Paul is praying for right now, power. He's transforming us into a house that pervasively reflects his own character. No offense. But we need the power of the Lord to transform us into something that reflects him. Amen? Because we can't do it on our own. And when we do, when we don't read this, when we don't speak to him, when we don't surround ourselves with other people who are believers who are building us up in truth and love, when we don't, we are reflecting our own selves to the world. We are reflecting purple, green, and gold wallpaper, guys, and it is ugly. He wants to give us the power to renovate our lives. We need the power to fully grasp that. The second thing that he prays over and over is for them to understand Christ's love. And, you know, we have to have the power of God to understand that, don't we? It's sometimes so hard when you talk to people that don't understand who Jesus is, isn't it? It's hard to understand. But here's what I found so beautiful about what he says here, and this is, this is where we're going to finish today. In verse 19, he says this, And to know the love of Christ that surpasses understanding, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Listen, if there's nothing else that you grasp, grasp this. He's not talking here about how you love God, okay? He's not talking here about how you love other people. We talk about that a lot in the Bible. Don't get me wrong. Those are the two things. But right here, Paul's not praying that, is he? And I find that so interesting. He's praying instead that I understand how much he loves me. If you're a parent, it's easy to pray for your kids, If you're a parent, it's easy to see the things that are lovable and beautiful in your kids. If you are a spouse, it's, well, sometimes easy. 
sometimes easy. But, it's, but you know what I'm trying to say here? When you're a friend, oh, I can pray for my friends. I'm so good at praying for my friends. I'm so good at seeing the lovable things about my friends. I, I'm even, I would even venture to say I'm pretty good at loving God. But do I fully grasp the fact that he loves me? Do I fully grasp the idea that the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of his love for me, I, I, I think I shelve that, and I think that's where the enemy sneaks into my world. I can love you well. I'm good at that. I can love him well. I'm pretty good at that. But understanding that I am loved, I am loved securely, I am loved without limit, I am loved beyond anything I could understand on this earth. I am loved when I do the bad stuff. I am loved when I respond poorly. I am loved when I suffer. I'm loved when things are good and I run away from God because I got this. I'm loved. Paul wants us to understand that. He wanted this church to know above all that they are loved. Do you understand that above all, that you are loved? His love for you is secure. His love for you is limitless. His love for you surpasses any knowledge of anything you've ever experienced on this earth. Claim it. I'm going to pray, and then I think a flamingo is going to come up on stage. Okay. God, thank you. Um, Lord, uh, I don't understand sometimes how you can love me. I am a mess. God, uh, you love me anyway. You love me despite the mess. And so, Father, uh, we thank you for Paul for praying that over his church, but Lord, ultimately praying that over us, that we could understand with the power that only you can bring that we are loved. Lord, thank you so much for this word today. Thank you for Paul's prayer. Thank you for Paul's crazy rabbit trail. Um, and God, above all, thank you that you gave him words and insight into who you are because of your son. Thank you that you knocked him down off a horse. Lord, um, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.